Thanks for joining us today on The Pulse by Bernstein, where we bring you insights on the economy, global markets, and all the complexities of wealth management. I'm your host, Stacey Jacobson. It's no secret that entrepreneurship poses a challenge under any circumstances, but today's founders face an economic and social landscape that feels increasingly tricky to navigate. The rapid pace of innovation requires constant adaptation and investment. The nature of the global market brings ever-changing uncertainties, from supply chain issues to rising interest rates. And perhaps more than ever, entrepreneurs aspire to not just grow their businesses, but to align their personal values with their financial goals. For today's episode, I'm joined by Brian Halusim, Senior Managing Director at Bernstein, for a conversation with Justin Schneider. Justin and his wife, Hope, founded Wolf & Shepherd, an innovative shoe company that's carved out a niche in performance dress footwear and has attracted the attention of celebrity athletes. We wanted to get his insights on charting a path from athlete to entrepreneur, his personal philosophy on blending businesses and family life, and his company's unique approach to stimulating growth. We'll also touch on how he manages to turn challenges into opportunities for learning, especially in today's economic climate. Brian and Justin, thanks so much for being with us today to cover these topics. Thank you, Stacy. So Justin, I'm really excited about this conversation, partly because I'm a fan of the product. In fact, I remember in 2018 walking by a small kiosk at the mall that's adjacent to our business here and walking in and realizing that this was actually something I haven't seen in a while. It seemed like a bit of a disruptor. And so I ended up buying the monk strap shoes and realized one thing when I put them on, they felt like sneakers. And I thought to myself, these guys are onto something. And over time, I've definitely become far more aware of the brand. But I think to set the stage today, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your story and the origin of Wolf and Shepherd. Definitely. So, you know, I was uh, recruited as a decathlete in track and field at Notre Dame and ended up running there for four years. So I always had an affinity for sports and kind of the journey of athletes. I also got accustomed to what you equip with yourself with every single day. So after college, I ended up working at Adidas as a footwear designer. I interned there and then hopped over to a few other shoe companies, New Balance and Reebok, to kind of sharpen my teeth in understanding how are products made for athletes. And so with a background in athletics, working in you know innovation, footwear design, it was really kind of the foundation of my career. And it also kind of gave me the courage to start Wolf and Shepherd. The interesting thing is that I had a friend who I was freshman year hallmates with who was working at a private equity firm, would walk to work uh, Monday through Friday to get his exercise in. And he had just spent his bonus check on a nice pair of English-made Goodyear welted shoes, something like $600 on these things with his bonus check. And it took him over a month to break these in. And it was so painful for somebody in their late 20s that he ended up wearing his athletic shoes to work just to sit under his desk for 10, 11 hours a day where nobody would see his nice dress shoes. And he said, on the way to work one day, he was just venting like, why can't I have a shoe that feels like my sneakers, but looks really high quality that I can wear to work every day? And he's like, you're a shoe designer. Why don't you figure it out? And so I took that challenge literally and immediately went in and took some of my dad's old dress shoes and some of my athletic shoes and just started cutting them up using you know a box cutter and a Dremel and just trying to figure out how could I match these together. And although that wasn't the product we wear today, I was excited to pursue that. And I said, look, if I can make a product that is sellable and wearable, that's just a little bit more comfortable than what people are expected to wear to work and is workplace ready, 
then I'm going to go full steam into this. And that goal was met that that holiday where I had a prototype of a shoe that I had made out of a factory I'd found that made shoes out of Guanajuato, Mexico, and started doing pre-sales from there. And Justin, you mentioned all these shoe brands you had worked for prior to starting Wolf and Shepherd. What were other takeaways that you learned while you were there in terms of the motivation for what you are now doing at the company that you're running? That's a great question, Brian. So one of the most exciting things that I pulled away from working at New Balance was I had a, a fantastic manager, people that were very passionate in the innovation department. So we were always trying to craft what's the best shoe for professional athletes. And I remember my design manager asking me, what do you think needs to go into the next track spike or running shoe for, for athletes? And I said, oh, well, it needs to be lightweight. It needs to have structure. It needs to secure to the foot. And it needs to allow them to perform. And he said, that's wrong. Uh, the right answer is all athletes who perform at a high level are looking to win. And how are we inspiring them with the product they're wearing to win? Ultimately, that's the goal. And then you work backwards from there to what structure and support and what it should look like. So when I was challenged with this for everyone else, my my aha moment was like, well, 99.9% .9 of us are never going to be professional athletes or even get close to that. So what does it look like to take that same way of thinking, which has been driving the sportswear market into the largest in the consumer space? What if we applied that way of thinking on how we create products for everybody else who their field of performance is what we do every day? It's sales, it's accounting, it's real estate, it's private equity, it's you know art, whatever your profession is or whatever you define as your field of performance and you're looking to win there. What if we equipped them through storytelling and products that allow them to perform at their best? No, I really appreciate that perspective. As I've seen the brand grow, I've always wondered, how have you done this? Because there are these big names out there and we tend to become so familiar with them. We almost feel like those are the only ones around. Can you talk a little bit about how you built momentum in the company, a little bit more about how you've also grown the brand? Sure, Brian. Well, I have to start by saying that it, it wasn't just me. My wife, Hope, who's now our co-CEO in the business, played a huge role in this. And so maybe I started the origin, but it very much is Hope and I who have built Wolf and Shepherd and our team today. She, by the way, was the only one who actually believed that, you know, this is going to be a big company one day. This is something that can actually change the footwear industry. And a lot of our ideas came to life through a joint vision. And so we started out with kind of taking this athletic approach to a relatively you know, antiquated industry. All of the innovation and thoughtfulness and talent has gone towards making sports products better. But there's not been the same thought and innovation going into what we wear to work every day. And so what really started to create movement and momentum was when we started to tell the stories around what this brand represents. So we had a, a friend who was actually an all-American distance runner um, who had just graduated from Syracuse run a marathon in our dress shoes. And, you know, we had this idea of like, here's a guy who can kind of be our ringer and we named it our next shoe after him. But we had him, we said, hey, there's a, where's the closest marathon in the shortest period of time? And there was one in Atlanta called the Hotlanta Half Marathon. So we said, hey, we'll fly you in. Um, we want to record this and we want to set the Guinness World Record for fastest half marathon or marathon ran in a pair of our dress shoes. The thought being, look, if this shoe is comfortable enough to win a race, or to run a marathon, then it's got to be comfortable enough to get to work. And, you know, to our surprise, Uris, Selenix, our runner, ended up running a 550 mile pace for this race and won by over four minutes 
from the second runner with 8,800 runners in this race. So we were front and center. I ran within the last three miles with a gimbal and within 24 hours, you know, hope cut together a, a one minute, 30 second and 15 second video. And we farmed those out to everybody else, including Forbes. And we had over 53 publications pick up the story. So that was really, I guess, the initial moment where we had a story to tell and all great brands tell a story that really creates desire, inspires people to move. So you brought up hope. Talk to me a little bit about the division of labor between the two of you and how you've been able to juggle a large family, but also working together on a daily basis. Yes. Well, fortunately, our company has kind of grown commiserate with our family. Hope's incredible in the fact that, you know, she's helped me co-lead this business while also giving birth to five of our beautiful children. You know, the company has gone through a lot of evolutions in which Hope and I have played pretty much every role in the company. At one point, I was answering the phones for customer support. And then I moved over to production and started doing our inventory buys and Hope moved into customer support. I ran performance marketing for a hot second and then Hope did it better. And so she took over that. So over kind of an iterative process, you know, we didn't get things perfect right away. I mean, when I started Wolf and Shepherd, I was, I had just turned 25 years old. Hope was 23 at the time. But I think the thoughtfulness and, you know, our commitment to just figuring things out as we went. And although we did make a lot of mistakes, you know, we cared more than anybody else. And that helped us kind of identify what is the most efficient way to do these different aspects of this business. And today, that's kind of divided between Hope now taking on a lot of our branding. She's effectively our co-CEO and, and chief merchant and chief marketing officer. So our storytelling, brand, product, creation, and performance runs into Hope, whereas a lot of the operations and finance and business development, managing our investor base and collaborations and relationships flows into me. And then we have the support of our whole team behind us as well. Speaking of marketing, as I know that's a, a major role that, that Hope plays, but I still know that you play. Talk to me about how you both started thinking about the partnerships that you've created, the collaborations with people like Gronkowski. And I remember when Steve Nash popped out onto the scene wearing your shoes and being a part of your campaigns. I know that that's made a difference. Yeah. So Brian, that's a great question. When we started identifying that these like athletic-based storytelling was really compelling, it was authentic to Hope. We met actually at a track meet in college. She was a heptathlete. I was a decathlete. And we started to foster a relationship through sports, through track events. That story being authentic, we talk about authenticity a lot because today with everything being so exposed and transparent through social media, people, consumers, whether directly or indirectly, identify things that feel authentic to them. And that leads to, frankly, a better business. So the evolution of kind of running a marathon in shoes got makes it so you're comfortable enough to get to work led to running with the bulls in Pamplona in a pair of the monks that you bought, Brian, to what's the fastest commute? Maybe it's a guy jumping out of his plane and landing on the roof of his office. That narrative seemed to really resonate with people that I can kind of have these superhuman opportunities in life and I'm going to pursue them in a superhuman way. So when we wanted to bring that more mainstream and we had a larger audience to share our story with, we almost serendipitously at first you know, ran into a relationship with Steve Nash. And so here's a guy who's been an NBA all-star, one of the best point guards in history, if not the best, who you know, has five kids as well and you know was successful on and off the court. And we said, hey, well, how do we tell stories together? And so he actually worked with us on the crossover long wing, which ended up being a bestseller for about three years. 
And, you know, we had a lot of success with that kind of right before and through kind of the early stages of COVID. That snowballed into a relationship with Rob Gronkowski, who we understood was a fan of the brand. We have other relationships that we've built now with Maria Sharapova and Aaron Andrews. So that's played a big part of amplifying our message. Yeah, you've used the words meaning, authenticity. I even remember in our very early conversations when I first met you, for some reason, it just keeps resonating these words, values-based guardrails for growth. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you guys? For sure. You know, I think when you are starting a company and you're getting advice from friends and family and colleagues, people ask you a lot, well, what's your vision? What's your mission? What do you stand for? And to be honest, initially, I don't know if I was able to explicitly communicate what those things were. But I do know that we always prioritized our family. We've always been very ambitious and we've wanted to do things in an authentic way. So that slowly starts to build up. What is the real mission of your company? And what do you, what do you stand by? Cause you have to have guardrails set predetermined before you get to your destination. Otherwise those values go out the window. Well, it's obviously worked. And I'd like to just kind of go back for a minute and think about when you started realizing, wow, people are really buying this product. What was the catalyst and what sort of started that momentum in the business? That's a great question, Brian. We, we actually, we tried everything the first probably year and a half. Like I went to trade shows to see if, you know, independent stores or department stores would buy our product. I literally did something that, you know, having a dad that started out in insurance sales and wealth management called refer lead prospecting, right? Where you build a relationship with a customer and then they refer you to the other customers. And actually that was the earliest success we had calling people and really showing your conviction was the best way to spread the word and to start getting a foundation of customers. I remember talking to my dad four days into the launch of the product on our website. And he asked me how it was going. He's like, I've been working on this for eight months. You've officially launched. What are your sales goals? I said, well, I have to sell around 50 to 60 pairs of shoes a week for the next six weeks in order to pay for the deposit to even make these shoes. I said, great, where are you this week? And it's a Thursday. And I said, well, I've sold 12 shoes this week. And he said, well, what the heck are you doing? Has your brother bought a pair? And I said, well, no, he said he would buy some. So, you know, he'll do it eventually. And he's like, look, if you can't get your older brother to buy a pair of your shoes, then you might as well throw in the towel now. And he's like, you got to call him right now. Get him to buy a pair of shoes. And I said, look, I've never asked anything of you before in my life. As my older brother, who I love and respect, I want you to know this is my life. The last eight months of my life has been this. And it would mean so much to me if you'd go on right now and buy. And so he went online. He's like, well, what color should I get? And I was like, you know, get both. And at the time we had priced our shoes at, I think, 350 bucks. He's like, that's $700. You know, that's a lot of money. And I said, I know. I promise you, if you don't love them, I'll find a way to pay you back. But you got to do it now. I, I saw the order come in and I was like, great. And from there, I had prepared an email that I wanted him to send to all his coworkers. He worked at an investment firm. And I said, Johan, thanks for the order. Again, this is the last ask I'll ever make in my life to you. But it would mean so much to me if you would... Take this pre-written email, feel free to adjust it and send it out to all your coworkers saying how much it would mean to you if they would invest in your little brother's venture by buying a pair or two of our shoes. And he's like, I'm not going to be that guy. I hate it when people spam at work and say, hey, look at this. Um, I'm not that guy. And I said, well, all the more reason it's going to be that much more meaningful. And I want you to share it and commit to them that no matter what, if they buy a pair of shoes and they don't like them, that you're going to make sure you pay them back. And I'll pay you back for whatever you owe them. About an hour later, I saw I was blind copied on an email to, I don't know, a couple hundred people. And the next morning I woke up 
And I had found out that night that we had, I believe it was about 38 pairs of shoes sold. And his boss bought three pairs. And I said, wow, like, you know, if you shift your mindset from, hey, it'd be nice if you bought a shoe, you know, let me know if you can do it to, I need you to buy this shoe. This is my life. This means so much to me. And that conviction has never failed me over the last seven to eight years. Justin, from where you sit today, it looks like the growth of Wolf and Shepherd was on this almost hockey stick trajectory. But we know that companies don't just grow in a straight line. There's some curves along the way. Can you share some of those stories that really challenged you in the moment and that you've learned from? Stacy, great question. One story I'd really love to share with you, which is we had built up a first order out of Mexico of 388 units. And these were already three to four months late. So similar to like a Kickstarter campaign, I had uh, been communicating regularly with a lot of our first customers who had pre-ordered this product. That essentially was funding this. And in hindsight, that was really risky. But production ended up almost four months late. And as I was giving these updates, uh, I had heard that this first run of products was officially complete and they were out with FedEx to cross the border. So I excitedly sent an email to our first customers. Hey, the shoes have officially been complete. They're shipping to your doorstep. And I think I had over 80 of those first customers complaining about not receiving them. And some people were getting really upset. I'd get calls at midnight East Coast times asking where our shoes were, that this was like a fraudulent deal, that it wasn't ever even going to happen. So I sent out this email notifying everybody, which was probably a little bit premature because I didn't have control of the inventory. And I wake up the next morning to the factory owner, Lupita, sharing with me that, you know, our shoes had been stopped at customs. They did not clear the border. And while they were in storage, a dishwashing sub company who was also stopped was stacked on top of our boxes, not only crushing the boxes, but there was a leakage and this dishwashing soap had basically destroyed the majority of this inventory that was already four months late. So with the last few hundred dollars that we had in the bank, I booked a flight to Mexico and went to the factory to see that the returned merchandise was in fact completely destroyed. And I'm like, oh, I'm screwed. I'm, I'm done. You know, now I'm going to have to figure out how to pay over a hundred grand back to customers who didn't get a product and I don't have product to give them. So we sat there and walked through like, can we use new leather? Can we make the shoes again? And she's like, well, we don't have any money to make more shoes and we don't have any materials. So we can't do anything about this. So I'm walking around the, the factory frustrated and I see kind of a hitch in a door and it's the domestic supply of leathers. And I said, how about this stuff? This is kind of close to the color. Why don't we use this to make up the shoes? So we can't do that. Those are already bought. That's for another order. Said so they feel great. They're, they're, they're wonderful. And it was a bison leather that was actually softer than the calfskin I had used it. So even more comfortable. And I said, how about this? I'm going to put in another order, which I didn't have yet. I'm going to put in an order of over 500 units and I will get you that deposit if we can use these leathers. And she agreed, and this is on a Saturday. So the following Sunday, we had 24 people come into the factory. We had a mass, because there was Mary on the wall. They have mass every morning, and then we got to work. We were able to, in about three days, relast all the shoes, recut the patterns, get them reboxed, and send them with insurance over the border. And we were able to get those shoes to them about five days later. And I think in hindsight, I have this tendency to overpromise and it makes it very hard to overdeliver on an overpromise. So a big thing that I've learned as we've gotten bigger and we have more responsibility with team and investors, I mean, we've got millions of dollars in investors. You have to kind of calibrate towards reality and it's okay to be excited and ambitious and believe the future is great, but you also have to do that in a grounded way. 
that's just such an amazing story and really highlights how you had to be innovative from the beginning. I have one last question, actually two parts. Uh, you mentioned millions of dollars in investor money. Take us through the process of raising capital and you know what you've had to go through in those iterations. And then I'd also love to hear what the future of Wolf and Shepherd looks like maybe over the next three to five years. Sure. We've always, as an inventory heavy business, have always needed some fund of capital. It's predominantly come from selling the shoes, but eventually you need to build a team. You need to support all of these functions. What people tell you you're supposed to do is build a business plan and go pitch it to investors, receive capital, then go prove your idea. And I tried that. And probably the worst business plan ever was like a 12 page Word document with some pictures in it. And I did get a family office to bite. And they ended up offering me a term sheet for a $1.2 million investment for 85% of the business. So I would, before we launch, end up with 15% of the business and just didn't sound right to me. I'm thinking, okay, this is valuing us at like one and a half million dollars, but what's the upside? And I don't own this thing. And they said, hey, well, look, you're 24 years old. If this pans out, you could make a couple million bucks. It would be amazing. And that wasn't the objective at the time. That wasn't the mission. I figured if we're successful, financial results will come. So I passed on that and I figured my only option here was to make believers of people. And the best way to do that was to sell shoes. So we raised $250,000 from friends and family who had already been like those part of those first customers. We had, I believe we had 487,000 in sales history to date. So that was about 16 months. We had over 500,000 in sales and I was able to raise $250,000 there. And I remember seeing a 25K check from an investor and be like, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? This is so much money. I can't believe somebody trusted me with this. And I felt so beholden to them. And I didn't sell 85% of the business. It was, you know, in the teens. And those investors, by the way, have gotten over a hundred X return at this point. So they're pretty happy that 25K is worth like $4 million. So that was the start. And it was just kind of proof is in the pudding. Next time, you know, I went out to raise a little bit more capital and it was a seven figure check. Well, we had uh, 2.8 million in sales. Um, we did it again when we had 10 million in sales. And we did it again when we had 38 million in sales and so on and so forth. When you make a commitment to someone and then you meet those goals or exceed them, you create believers in them. And so my small investor base of seven investors with 25 to 50 K checks, each of them became advocates. So what does that now point to with regard to maybe the next few years of the company's outlook? Well, as you start to build credibility and your name comes out there, then you start getting interest in potentially having larger institutional partners or people who want to buy out the brand. I remember we had our first inbound offer to buy the business from an Austin-based family office, maybe it was four and a half years ago, and it was you know an eight-figure number. And we were like, oh, we're just getting started. There's so much more opportunity. And in the last year and a half, as we've started to get more national recognition, there's been a lot of interest from strategic partners and growth sponsors that has us considering what is best for the trajectory of work? Wolf and Shepherd can go. And so, Brian, as we think about what's next for the business, people have asked, are you going to sell the business? Are you going to take more investment? And I think what I have to go back to, and the best advice I've gotten from existing shareholders and other founders is like, don't focus on necessarily the exit. Be aware of the market. Know your market, know your value, but you've got to ultimately build this business towards what it's ultimately supposed to be. And I believe that Wolf and Shepherd has the potential to be a global lifestyle brand that equips frankly, these multi-hyphenates winning professionals all across the world to achieve their dreams. And 
hopefully we're a part of that narrative by offering them a little bit more comfort and style. As long as we stay within our guardrails of our values and we fulfill that desire in us to ambitiously drive towards a goal, then liquidity events and capital structure and financial partners, they're what we plan for as a result of what do we ultimately believe is important to us, Hope and I as founders, and what structure is going to allow us to get there the fastest. It's in our best interest to steward those decisions on behalf of our shareholders, our team, and the future of the business, and try to align as many of these things towards what we ultimately think Wolf and Shepherd can be in the future. Well, we look forward to watching both as fans of the brand and fans of, of you and Hope, that continued growth of the company. Well, Justin, thank you so much again for being with us here. Your story is inspirational. And again, we really look forward to watching the trajectory of Wolf and Shepherd. Thanks so much, Brian. And thank you, Stacy. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your stories of success that have brought you and Hope and Wolf and Shepherd to the place that it is today. And Brian, thank you so much for leading the conversation. That's all for this week on The Pulse. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks, so don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.